Hey, at the outset of my message this morning, I want to just a little survey. How many of you have heard or maybe read somewhere like on the internet that Elvis is still alive? <laughs> Do you know that there are actually people who still believe this? There's a Facebook page called Facebook backslash evidence that Elvis Presley is still alive. Now, of course, this is how the king of rock and roll looked back in his heyday, okay? And people in his, I guess you could say his fan club, diehard believers, they will uh, uh, sometimes post pictures. Here's one that was up on that very website on Facebook of a supposed Elvis sighting. <laughs> I'm not kidding. They're, they're, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting to me. Elvis would be 82. You know, I think the photographer here was the same guy who got those pictures of Sasquatch. You know, that guy with the grainy... Okay. Anyway... <laughs> The reality is, is that 2,000 years ago, Jesus' followers were going around and telling people that Jesus had come alive again. Jesus had appeared to a number of his disciples, not all at once, but in sequence. He had appeared to his disciples, and these people's lives were so profoundly impacted that most of them ended up dying for their conviction that he was, in fact, risen from the dead. But you know, after all that they had seen him go through, meaning the beating, uh, the merciless beating that he took, uh, then being crucified, dying, and then put into that tomb, uh, it's no wonder, in some senses, that some of his followers doubted that he had, in fact, risen from the dead. Of course, the most famous or perhaps infamous one of them all is the guy that got the moniker, Doubting Thomas. And I want to talk about his story today. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 20 in your New Testament. And there's a bulletin in your, or an outline, excuse me, in your bulletin to follow along with as well. Now, just a little backstory. Thomas was not always a doubter. Um... He was like many people at that time of history that had become so persuaded by the words and the miracles and the other things that Jesus said and did that he literally left everything to follow him. Now, there were a lot of people that followed Jesus, started out in the dozens, went to the hundreds. We really don't know. There may have been thousands of people that followed after him. And yet, this guy Thomas was not just a run-of-the-mill follower. In fact, the Bible tells us in the gospel accounts that he was chosen to be one of 12 closest followers of Jesus that we would today call apostles. So this guy was a legitimate believer. And yet, he struggled. I want to look at this passage together, beginning in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24, which was after the resurrection. Let's look at it together. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, and that just means he was a twin, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. 
Have you ever experienced doubts, and in particular about your faith in God? I think it's normal. We all experience doubts at times, and we can relate at least to some extent to what Thomas was experiencing in that moment. Struggling with doubt is a thing that we all go through. And why is that? Well, you know, sometimes when we make a decision to follow Jesus, maybe like last Sunday. Some of you may have come last Sunday, which was Easter Sunday, or maybe another Easter Sunday or some special occasion. You thought, you know, this is it. I really want to do this. And yet, later, maybe a week later, maybe a month, a year, certain things begin to happen that don't begin to correspond with what you heard and thought that this was really going to be. And you begin to doubt it. Now, some people talk about it. Some people don't. But the reality is, I think all of us have experienced that emotion at one time or another. But you know, the fact remains, in my strong opinion, that although doubt can be common, it doesn't have to cripple you. As long as you realize some of these things, and I, here's the first point in my message today, and that is you can doubt without being dishonest about it. You know, Thomas's attitude, in my opinion, was not that unusual if you stop and back away from it. You know, when you've invested so much of your life into one person or a goal or a dream, and then all of a sudden, it goes away. And then somebody comes to you and says, oh, no, no, it's not over. Now, you're thinking in your mind, no, it's over. It's hard to kind of reconcile that. I think Thomas was the kind of a guy that had lived long enough to where, you know, he would say, you know, if something is too good to be true, it probably is, okay? I think Thomas was a stubborn guy. But, you know, stubbornness is not always a bad thing if you're, you're sincere in your stubbornness. What these guys, his friends, his longtime friends, had asked him to believe, meaning that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead, even though he hadn't seen him. What they had asked him to believe was so radical that he was the kind of guy that just had to be sure. And you know, what's wrong with that? I think Thomas was a totally authentic kind of a guy. I've met people, many people, who kind of glibly state that, oh, yeah, I believe in something, you know? And yet when push comes to shove, especially in things like faith, their faith just is like a house of cards. It just falls down. But Thomas was the kind of guy that just absolutely refused to say he believed something or he understood something if he really didn't. I mean, one of the key issues with doubt is whether or not you want an answer or you want an argument. I've talked to many people over the years, and many of them extremely intelligent people, and have challenged them to consider the claims of Jesus. Sometimes, initially, they're interested. They'll want to talk. But at a certain point, I've noticed that sometimes what they really want is really not an answer. 
They just want an argument. They'll throw up questions, you know, these kinds of questions that will come up and be posed to you. You know the ones that stump you in those situations? And what I've determined in a lot of cases, not all, but in a lot of cases, those questions are really like, like in the military. It's like a smoke screen. It's something just designed to take the attention off the real issue over here where the fire is. Do you know what I'm saying? It's just something that's, it's just, you know, and then you think, you know, you're at some holiday occasion. You're the one who prays at the table. You know what I'm talking about? And then they ask you these hard questions, and then you think, well, I don't know if I'm going to say anything anymore. Some doubts are dishonest, but other doubts are actually honest doubts. I think it's possible to have honest doubts. Because I think, like Thomas, Jesus knows that there are times when we need answers to certain questions in order to make an intelligent decision to follow him, not just on a Sunday, but on Wednesday, when you don't want to go to work and you don't feel well. Do you know what I'm talking about? To me, the church needs more people like Thomas today. I think the world out there is basically sick and tired of people who claim to be followers of Jesus, but whose actual priorities are far from that. They have a word for that. It's hypocrites. Is it any wonder that Christians are so often characterized by the media in particular as being, you know, simple-minded bigots who are deluded about reality? But if, like Thomas, the doubts that you have lead you to look long and hard at the evidence that's there, I can guarantee you that the results will yield a person that has a deep conviction and a worldview, a way of approaching life that will cause the world around you to stand up and take notice that this person has a legitimate faith. Second point here that we can learn from Thomas is this, and that is that faith goes above reason, but not necessarily against reason. Let's pick up that story in that passage in John chapter 20 again. Let's look together. So a week later, meaning that's a week after the first Easter, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and this time Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, the first official OMG moment. Kids should have stayed for that one. But why did Jesus do that? Did he just want to show off his shape-shifting morph ability? I don't think so. I think Jesus was trying to make a point to Thomas and to us today that we need to exercise both faith and reason in order to become an authentic follower of his. Many people today believe that faith and reason are mutually exclusive. The prevailing view, in my opinion, in Western society, and in particular in the academic arena, 
is that religion is basically a personal, a very private matter, which cannot be affirmed by objective scientific evidence. And for many who fall into that camp, faith is more of a, an intuitive kind of phenomena. And the only way to truly experience it is to become basically irrational and illogical. But listen, while the Bible is a religious book, it's also a reasonable book. The Bible challenges people like you and me to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, not on some sort of a leap of faith like Indiana Jones where he goes out into the cliff, you know? That isn't what the Bible calls us to. It calls us rather to make a decision to follow Jesus based on thoughtful reflection and thorough investigation. You know, the Christian faith is the only truly reasonable faith. Any study of the major religions that are in the world today will show you that with the notable exception of Christianity, that true faith, quote-unquote, requires the adherent to never question the teachings of the organized religion that he or she is a part of. Because, you see, if you were to question those teachings, that must mean that you just don't have it. But being a Christian, I'm happy to share with you today, does not require you to check your brains at the door when you come in. No. It does not require us to commit intellectual suicide. This is why the Apostle Paul later writing to the church at Thessalonica said in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 21 said this, test everything and hold fast that which is good. He challenged people to go ahead and test it out. See, faith in Jesus Christ is not only sensible and reasonable, because you see, it's based on facts, not on blind faith or wishful thinking. This is really what the prophet Isaiah, uh, almost 3,000 years ago, said this in chapter 1, verse 18 of his, of his book. He said, come let us reason together, says the Lord. You see, biblical faith, again, isn't against reason. But sometimes it does go beyond reason. I'm so thankful for reason. Reason is a wonderful gift that God has given to us to make good decisions. Especially in matters regarding God. But how many of you know that there are times that faith surpasses reason because it involves the operation of a higher law? All of us learned in school the law of gravity. What goes up must come down. If you were to take, a, say, a car, which is about, say, two tons, and put it into a body of water, that car would sink, right? Because it's, the gravity is going to pull it down. Or... If you took a car and put it on the lanai and drove it off, like in the movies, it wouldn't land on the other building, it would go down, 
okay? But most of us have also learned that there are some laws of science when people who are skilled enough to exercise them in the building of certain vessels can build something out of, out of tons, of like a hundred tons of steel and put it on the water and it won't sink. Now, I'm no scientist, but I understand that even though the law of gravity still exists, that this multi-ton ship and probably full of hundreds, maybe thousands of people will float because of another law, at least one, called the law of displacement. One law superseding another. Or how many of you, when you get on an airplane, like when Don and I get on Hawaiian Airlines to fly to Maui to see our grandson, now, look, I listen to the stewardess just like you do, okay? I, you know, But you know what? Nothing ever happens. How does that thing get off the ground? How many hundreds of tons is, is, are these jets? Well, there's other laws, the laws of thrust and aerodynamics. Again, I don't fully understand that, but I trust it enough to know I'm going to be okay. See, we exercise our faith in this way all of the time. Yet when it comes to things like with God, why do we doubt? <laughs> the story of Thomas, among other things, encourages me, and I hope it does to you, that Jesus will provide us with everything we need in order to have a reasonable faith. Keep in mind, too, picture yourself. You're in that room with Thomas. Jesus materializes right through the wall, okay? Thomas still had a decision to make. Was the person standing before him the same person that he saw beaten, crucified, put into that grave, and this rolled the stone over? Was this the same guy? He had to decide that. And I would add that because Thomas, as one of the 12, had traveled for at least three years with Jesus through his earthly ministry, he had certainly, in all likelihood, witnessed the power of demons to create, shall we say, a counterfeit apparition of someone in order to deceive people. Yet, we don't read of anything about Thomas going up to him and saying, I'm going to get a magnifying glass. Can you just hold still right there? I'm going to see this. Oh, no. Here we go. I know. We don't see him saying, I just want to get a little DNA sample here. We'll do a little test. I'll see you in a week. I'll decide then whether or not I'm going to believe in you. No. <laughs> when he saw Jesus, he believed. He knew. That was enough. And I'm convinced, you see, that Jesus knows exactly what you need and what I need in order for us to have a faith that's strong, that's reasonable. Do you know that Jesus knows all of your fears? That in those dark moments when you're alone and you're thinking through things and you don't know for certain that Jesus knows all those fears? Did you notice in this story that the first thing Jesus said when he showed up was peace be with you. 
Jesus wants to give you that peace. He wants you to be sure deep down inside. You know, the good news to me is that Jesus has not left us with our reason alone, as valuable as that is. One benefit of living longer I've discovered over the years is that there are situations that we go through in life for which there are no easy answers. And when my natural uh, resources are exhausted and I don't know why certain things have happened, we can look to Jesus. We can lean on him that we don't just have reason, we have faith. And we can, in fact, experience the peace that passes all human understanding. Last point I want to make from this story today is this, and that is that your decision about Jesus will determine your destiny. Thomas may have doubted his friend's initial claims about Jesus rising from the dead, not because he was a coward. He voiced his doubts not to play games, but because he wanted to be sure. He understood the importance of that decision. And he was not about to make it casually. But once he was certain, (laughs) there was nothing half-hearted about his commitment. It was complete. Because you see, he wanted Jesus to be his leader, his Lord. In 1498, when the Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama and his men arrived on the southern tip of what we now call India, they discovered that Christianity was already there. Now, men like Vasco da Gama were men that were sent out by, like Christopher Columbus, were sent out primarily for issues of commerce. They wanted to develop trade routes, and they had heard things about, you know, getting to what they called Asia in those days. But they also usually brought priests with them. And when they got there, and they got past the language barrier and so forth, there in the southern tip of India, a city that later became known as Madras, and today is known as Chennai, they discovered that there were Hundreds, in fact, thousands of people who believed in Jesus already. And as they began to inquire, how could this be? This is the 1400s. They discovered that these people, although their faith was a little different than what we would, or they would have understood faith to be in the 1400s in Portugal, that they knew who Jesus was. But they traced their spiritual lineage back to a man who had come centuries earlier, in 52 AD, a man named Thomas. You see, Thomas, according to church tradition, had left and gone through what we would now call the Middle East, an area in your Bible maps, in in your Bible if you have one of those, that's called Parthia, which we would today call Iraq and Iran and even down into Pakistan, and had made it down to India further than any of the apostles had ever traveled outside of Jerusalem. Thomas eventually 
died a martyr's death, but before that time, records show that he reached out to these high-caste Brahmin priests called the Nabudri and reached out to them, and many of them came to faith in Jesus. Today, there are churches that are still there. Here's one of them and what it kind of looks like. But beyond buildings, what's interesting is the heritage that this man Thomas, despite his initial doubts, had. Some of you may have heard the name Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias, uh, who I would personally consider one of the foremost, if not the foremost Christian apologists of our day, came from that area in Chennai. He traces in his own story that his ancestors had heard about the gospel. And as a result of that, he's still living for Christ today. My question to you is, where do you stand today? Who is your leader? Who is your Lord? In spite of the doubts that you have, is Jesus your leader today? You know, one day we will all face Jesus. And at that point, there will, no decisions will be made at that time, meaning by you or me. And the reason why is because the Bible makes it clear that it's only this life that we have where we can make a decision to follow Jesus or not follow him. Have you made a decision to follow Jesus? Maybe you have, but maybe you're struggling with doubt. Maybe you've experienced some things that I have no clue about. Heartaches, uh, misgivings, I don't, you call it whatever you want, but there may be things that you're wondering, I don't know. But I want to challenge you today. You can put your faith in Jesus. You can trust in him. And I want to give you an opportunity right now to do that or to reaffirm your faith. Would you bow your head and hearts with me? Father, I thank you for this man, Thomas, for the testimony of his life, that though he struggled with doubt, that he came to that place where he was sure. And I pray for every person today that has struggled with doubt, whether this week or at another time. And I ask that today that you'd speak to their heart and help them to be able to get their feet planted on firm ground. Now, while every head is bowed and eye is closed, if you would like to make a decision to commit yourself to Jesus right now, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right where you're seated. Pray with me, and God will hear your prayer. Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I ask that you would forgive me my doubts. Help me my fears, especially help me to live for you. I want you to be my leader, my Lord. My friend, if you prayed that prayer today, I want to assure you, as the scripture said, that the testimony is this. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son does not have the life. And these things I've written to you in order that you might know that you have eternal life. Father, I thank you for every decision that's been made, and I ask that you confirm it by your spirit now, in the name of Jesus.
Amen.